leading us in praise. And brothers, I'm just so glad uh, that you would come on this Friday afternoon. I don't take that for granted. There's a lot of things you could be doing, uh, but you've come and to be a part of this conference. For those who are first timers, welcome to SOLA 2024 and pray that it would be an encouragement to you as you look at your ministry, as you look at your life, that the Lord would speak to us in this time uh, together. Our desire in offering this conference was to have one that would be accessible, uh, that wouldn't uh, just demand a lot of time and would be affordable and that we could come together and look at things in a substantive way um, and to build friendships and relationships and to encourage one another uh, ongoingly in, in the work of ministry. Um, you know, I, I pray that we'll have, sharpen some skills in our time together as we look at what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. This year, we're going to be focusing on the book of Jude. And so for the next few hours anyway, we're going to take a deep dive into that. And my assignment is to um, really focus on verse 3, why we must contend. Stephen Ambrose, in writing about citizen, soldier, and band of brothers, uh, you know, has a section where he, he, has, he has the statement or makes the statement uh, why we must fight, why we must contend. And then, you know, in following the airborne into Germany as they cross into the Rhine and they go into the uh, concentration camps, that, among many other evils, uh, was a justification for battle. And certainly we're battling for something far more precious, and that is human souls. And I pray that you would be encouraged. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Don Wilton, and he used to come in. You know, we're all there just kind of trying to make, do our best uh, getting through seminary. And uh, he'd come in and, he'd go, and he was from South Africa. And if you don't know Dr. Wilton, he just a great gift of encouragement. He'd say, you're the cream of the crop. We'd all look around at each other, and that can't be true. <laughs> but, you know, in God's eyes, he's called us. I think of um, Paul's statement to the Corinthians, consider your calling in salvation, but also in ministry, that we've been entrusted with the unsearchable riches of Christ to be faithful in that calling. So Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Filed in the back of our New Testament is a brief letter we call the book of Jude. And it reads more like a postcard than a book. 25 verses written by the half-brother of Jesus contains one of the greatest challenges given to believers and certainly to pastors. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're called to contend earnestly Without being contentious, without being unloving, without being harsh or arrogant or quarrelsome, our calling as followers of Christ is, is to contend for what's true in a world that says there's no such thing as truth, where truth is a wax nose that you fold on, form into whatever um, shape you want it to be. We're to fight for the truth. And I just would offer a challenge, you know, that... And that sounds maybe uncomfortable. Um, but it's not about our comfort. There, there needs to be lines in our mind and our heart, convictions about 
what we believe and how we're to engage this world with the truth of God's word. Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, that's not a hill on which to die? <clears throat> I, I think that's probably overused. I, I mean, it's certainly true. <laughs> you don't want to um, die on a hill based upon the color of the wall. But I think maybe we might be in danger with important truth to where we say, oh, that's not a hill to die on, and to really think through what that means. Um, what does it mean to contend? We're, we're to be driven by a, by a love that does not bend to sin nor is blown, blown about by every changing wind of a rebellious world. We're not to be indecisive about our soul's trust or wishy-washy concerning what God has said in his word. And so there, there's no question that one of the greatest dangers the church faces in any generation is the onslaught of false teaching. Just a perusal through YouTube will show that that's a problem. The late R.C. Sproul said the greatest enemy of Israel uh, were, not the, were not the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians even before then. The greatest enemy Israel faced were the false prophets who stood in their gates and propagated lies. And the people grabbed onto it. It was true in the Old Testament, as, in Jude, as Jude reminds us, by taking us on a journey on some pathetic downfalls in Israel's history. And in fact, an entire generation dies in the wilderness because of unbelief and idolatry. So our call to fight for the faith found in Jesus Christ, a fight which is not a physical campaign like the Crusades, but rather a spiritual battle. We're to put on the armor of God. We understand that our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. And that's hard to convince ourselves of sometimes. When, no, Lord, it really is flesh and blood. But it's not. Because ultimately the calling is for God's glory, Christ's glory, and his church. So we need the message of Jude, brothers. We need this message in our walk with Christ. And as the authoritative word over our church, over the churches that we pastor. So again, my, my assignment is to give, to give a panorama of this book, which was written in the mid-60s of the first century. Um, Jude's uh, and James were brothers. They were half, the half-brother of Jesus. And it's interesting to read how they surface in the Gospels as not being really fond of their older brother, half-brother. And James became the leader in the Jerusalem church. And, and Jude's salutation in verses 1 and 2 is similar uh, to James's. Uh, and so Jude refers to himself as a doulos, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he recognized um, just that he, the, the debt that he owed to, to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So he begins with a massive dose of assurance, a massive dose of assurance in verses 1 and 2. And it, it reads, the text reads, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This takes me back to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. I, I see a, a parallel with that golden chain of redemption that Paul mentions there. To whom he foreknew, he predestined and called and justified and glorified. So the believer in Jesus Christ, we're called effectively. It could be on a Damascus road. I remember um, the Lord saying to Ananias, I want you to go minister to Saul. 
I don't want to do that, Lord. He's mean. He kills people. He hurts people. He's a chosen instrument of mine. Think about your conversion. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, it may have been sitting in a pew. It may have been sitting on a park bench or driving your car or riding a bus or in your bed at night where you turned from your sins and you called out to the Lord and he saved you. So we know not how God's saving grace to us he's made known, only that he has and that Christ would come and die for us is, is an awesome thought. Jesus pledged to be with his disciples to the end. I will be with you always. In fact, the bookend of Jude, and Phil's going to uh, take us on a look at those passages. The bookend of Jude, uh, this wonderful assurance in verses 1 and 2, concluding with this great uh, statement to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence with great joy. Jude begins and concludes this letter by assuring the believer that God exerts his power to keep you to the end. And so other New Testament passages come to my mind as well that um, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. One reliable source puts it this way, simply, God has called me out of unbelief. Therefore, I know that he loves me with a particular electing love. Therefore, I know that he will keep me from falling. He will work in me that which is pleasing in his sight and present me with rejoicing before the throne of his glory. We're called, we're loved, we're kept. Notice, secondly, an urgent, necessary, timeless letter. Um, he, he says in verse three, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. He begins by referring to them as the beloved. So he's writing to believers. And it's in the perfect tense, loved in the Lord. And the perfect tense indicates that God placed his love on believers in eternity past with results that continue in the present and into the future. So from that blessed assurance in Jesus from uh, that every believer is given and, and indeed is God's desire that we experience this grace in full measure and that we are to fight the good fight of faith. And so he's, there's a sense of urgency, beloved. I'm very eager to write to you of our common salvation. Our salvation is, is common. Every believer shares it, that in common. The, the recipient, we're recipients of God's grace. Uh, we have repented of our sins. We have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our soul has been cleansed. Our, our lives have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And every believer's birthright is the same. Redeemed, saved, destined for glory. So he says of this beloved, it was necessary that I write to you. This was a compelling force. I'm, I, I really, I had to write to you. So much is on the line. What we believe is a revealed truth. This common salvation to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What's the faith? The core of what God has revealed in history and in time and in his word that we're to believe. We, what we believe is a revealed truth. It's a given truth. 
It wasn't established by some committee somewhere. It, it, it was revealed in history through God re- inspiring the writers of Scripture, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And we live in a world that oh, you can't know truth. And we're called to contend for it. So you see the clash, right? I, I was reminded years ago of, of the statement by Ted Turner, the mo- media mogul, who said, you know, I'm not looking for any big rewards. I'm not a religious person. I believe this life is all we have. I'm not doing what I'm doing to be rewarded in heaven or punished in hell. I'm doing it because I feel it's the right thing to do. Almost every religion, he continued, talks about a Savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you're putting on your lipstick or shaving, you're looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. And you see the clash. And we're called to contend and to speak the truth even in the face of such opposition. The body of truth that is summed up in Christ. And so when we look at that word contend, Fritz Reinecker in his linguistic key, but to struggle for, to contend for, to exercise great effort and exertion for something. So some hills we must die on. And we pray for wisdom to know what they are. So we're to contend, not to complain. Let us reason together. And so as you think with me in this conference, what are some of the doctrines that are on the chopping block, um, even in the church, even viewed as not very important at all or essential? And certainly in the world, that, you know, they have little regard for what we hold to. But how about the authority of Scripture in church life? To actually read the Bible in church. Um, to establish the scripture. I'm reminded of the old catechism that says the Holy Scripture of the Old and New Testament are the word of God and the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Every person is not only permitted, but commanded and exhorted to read and to hear and to understand the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures chiefly contain what man ought to believe concerning God and what the duty uh, um, and what duty God requires of man actually read it to know what he wants us to do. And so when we think about doctrines that we must contend for, um, the character of God, that he is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, you know, I just felt so compelled. Uh, we, we were working through Romans, and I, I don't know, we probably spent two months on Romans 3. I just really wanted to go phrase by phrase through Romans 3, which highlights the universal guilt of humanity. And what that means, there's none righteous, no, not run. No, not one. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. None. Because that's just dismissed out of hand. The desperate state of our fallenness. Male and female distinction we had an incredible um, development in this body. A, a young girl in our church was being pressured into the LGBTQ mold, the, the T in particular, and was geared up through the support of one of her parents to pursue surgery. And God saved her. And you just see the pull 
in this world. And to hear her profess Christ from the baptistry was truly a highlight last year. The power of the gospel to save, to not lose heart. Male-female distinction. You know what, you know what verse uh, won her over and all the things that she's... And she's grown up in church. A blended family. She's heard the gospel. But it was Genesis 1.27 that God created them male and female. Male and female, He created them. And she came to terms with the fact that I'm a female. That's how God's created me. The male-female distinction is a, a war zone in our culture. The exclusivity of Christ. There are many ways to what you call God. A universalism. Uh, no sexual ethic. Don't talk to us about that. That's even in the church. And I think of statements in the scripture like 1 Thessalonians 4.3 that um, we're, we're to abstain from, um, abstain from sexual immorality. I think of Hebrews 13.4 that the marriage bed is to be undefiled, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The tragic dumbing down of the Christian faith. Children not being challenged. Youth not being challenged. I, I was encouraged by Shane Pruitt's comment on Twitter, therefore it's true. <laughs> Shane Pruitt said, if students can understand algebra, chemistry, geometry, biology, literature, physics, and history, they can understand depravity, Christology, justification, repentance, faith, sanctification, and the Great Commission. And I'm wondering how many of our youth just maybe are bored because they're not challenged with, we're talking about God here. <laughs> we're talking about these wonderful truths that you need to know about. So as pastors, are we equipping our congregations to contend and to deepen our walk with God so we're not blown here and there by every wind of doctrine? Jude notes that the faith is once for all delivered to the saints. It doesn't change. It's not a changing message. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I thought of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15 where he said, with regard to the gospel, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that means he really died. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Piper said, the reason we have a Bible is that the church recognized that God had spoken for all in these writings. The canon was closed, and every other claim to truth is now measured by the standard we find in Holy Scripture. So there's a faith that's been delivered that we should contend for. And I'm hoping that in our conversations between sessions and in our panel that will come later this evening and tomorrow, that we would talk about that as it's worked out in, in, in our local churches. Notice with me, thirdly, we've talked about a massive dose of assurance, verses 1 and 2. We've looked at a, an urgent, necessary, and timeless letter in verse 3. Um, let's look at contending in, in that it's essential for the ever-present danger of falling away. The whole danger of apostasy. In verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've come into the fellowship. They've come into the ranks. 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. It's amazing how many times Jude emphasizes that, that descriptor, ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We read of that warning all through the Bible of falling away, the danger of falling away. Jesus mentioned it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, many will fall away and betray one another. 2 Thessalonians 2, let no one deceive you in any way and the danger of rebellion coming and falling away. 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter days some will depart from the faith. You know what's been really shocking, but I guess we shouldn't be, is over the last 20, 30 years, the fallout in the evangelical world. Of these major leaders and teachers within the ranks who have proven to be sexually immoral, dishonest. I think of Ravi Zacharias on one end, presented as an intellectual, living a double life, much to the shock and sorrow of those who loved his ministry for years. To the Duggars, to Bill Gothard, and the impact that they've had on the evangelical church. So souls are in danger. And I think maybe one of, the, one of the takeaways that I'm not intending is, well, we leave here kind of cynical or uh, suspicious or paranoid. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm just asking the Lord to give us a fresh awareness of the spiritual landscape as we pastor and that we would help God's people to grow in the grace and knowledge in, of, of him. And so in verse 4, he, he mentions they crept in unnoticed. That's a, that Greek word really describes a sinister um, pursuit. The worst enemies of Christian doctrine are those who name the name of Christ. We see apostasy all around. I see the Roman Catholic Church as an apostate church. Not because I'm judgmental, but when you see the edicts that have come out of Rome, most recently the blessing to same-sex couples, that affects everything. It does. Um, to other, uh, I think of Andy Stanley, who begins to question the Old Testament and its importance in the Christian life. That should concern us. To be discerning, to ask good questions. Not to be accusatory, but to be discerning. Paul speaks of this when he's in that emotional scene on the beach in Miletus in Acts 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, they'll arise speaking twisted things. I call these people soakers. What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, they soak into the wood of a Christian fellowship. They soak into a local church. They're there. They come. They're duty-bound. And they soak into the fabric of the church. And they present themselves as bulwarks and faithful. But when it comes to contending for the truth and standing on the essentials of the gospel, if push comes to shove, relationships are more important than truth. The church's reputation is more important, often misplaced, um, 
more important than the truth. And they soak into the woodwork. Without question, the greatest threat to the church has always been false teaching. And Jude is, he is intense in wanting to warn. And that's all through the Bible. I'm writing um, an article right now and preaching the historic books of the Old Testament. And you might be thinking, wow, that's a a tough stretch. (laughs) Going from Joshua to Esther, um, you know, kind of the pots and pans of the Bible. But man, there is just truth after truth, golden nuggets in forgotten places. And in 2 Kings 17, the writer of Kings makes this astonishing statement. Let me tell you, basically, is what he's saying in 2 Kings 17. Let me tell you why all this happened. Let me tell you about the captivities. Let me tell you about the judgment of God. Let me tell you about the sorrows and the tears that have been experienced. It's all because we forgot the Lord and embraced idolatry. And no longer walked in the truth. So Jude, verse 5, he mentions Israel in the wilderness, dying in the wilderness. The angelic world, angels who left their position of authority, maybe Genesis 6 comes to mind. Sodom and Gomorrah, God leveled. And that that conversation between the Lord and Abraham, where Abraham says, you know, I got family down there. Lord, would you spare it for 50? Yeah, I'll, I'll spare it for 50. 45, 45, 40, 30. Yes, I'll spare it for 30. 20? Yes, for 20. Lord, forgive me. Could I just make one more? Because he was doing the inventory of Sodom. He said, how about for 10? Maybe I could get Lot and his wife and their kids out. I'll spare it for 10. And a great statement is made there. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And so Sodom and Gomorrah stands as a monument to what God thinks of a a rebellious and sexually immoral people. Rebellion against God's revealed authority, verses 8 through 13. He mentions that interesting scene with Michael in verse 9. That they're contending for, he's con, the, the archangel's contending with the devil and disputing about the body of Moses. And even the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you. They're self-destructive. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They're like unreasoning animals, and woe to them who walk in the way of Cain. And he mentions Balaam's error, which was introduced into Israel and brought them great spiritual ruin. And Korah's rebellion, where, where, where God opens the earth and swallows up Korah and the rebellion uh, under Moses to show his power. Verse 13, these graphic scenes of wild waves of the sea and casting up foam. It's a horrible scene. They're grumblers, verse 16, malcontents. And how often these soakers, these apostates, live immoral lives and demonstrate the flesh in their attitudes. Friends, apostasy is frightening. It's a terrible thing to, to fall away from the living God. And so... The list Jude provides in this passage contains everything you and I would never want to be and should flee. Don't shrink back from your resolve to follow Christ, to contend for the truth, to not grow weary in well-doing. Just in my own experience, I was recounting with Phil uh, earlier today that my my first pastorate was in 
Araby, Louisiana. Anybody ever been to St. Bernard Parish? There's no place on earth like St. Bernard Parish. And I pastored there for three years. I've been to Yemen, Indonesia, other places, China, throughout China. That was the, St. Bernard was the hardest field I've ever been on. Yeah, I pastored one church in Violet. Anybody ever been to Violet? <laughs> uh, and uh, we had, you know, they had a pentagram spray painted on the street right in front of our church. It was that kind of neighborhood. And, um, you know, just um, wondering, is this, is this, you know, thinking, is this what I really need to be committed to? But what, what overcomes the call into ministry? What else can we do? This is the greatest job we could ever have. If we desire the work of the ministry, we desire a good thing. And, you know, working through those difficult assignments in ministry and not growing weary and well-doing to continue to preach, to continue to teach. And sometimes things come up in the church and you're wondering, how in the world is this ever going to be made right? How can this person continue to hound me and torment me, Lord? Or circumstances that come out, you wonder, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this thing alive. We're to contend. We are to speak the truth in love and to show Christ in those circumstances, to stand against the danger of falling away by living the truth and preaching it. Now, let me look at this last section kind of as a survey. Um, so a massive dose of assurance, an urgent, necessary, and timeless letter contending to avoid uh, the danger of falling away. And then fourthly, perseverance in the, in the grace of God. Verses 17 through 25, remember the warnings of Scripture. How do I persevere in the grace? I need to remember the warnings that come in his word. He says in verse 18, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles that said in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. They'll cause divisions and worldly people devoid of the spirit. And he's talking about that, those who assemble with the church. Remember the means that God has given, verses 20 and 21. Beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God. So there's an active part of our faith. We're doing, this really highlights body life, the need to be connected with other pastors for encouragement. To remember the means that God has given. Keep yourself in the love of God. How do I do that? I'm meditating upon the word day and night. I'm thinking about God's promises. I'm, not, I, I'm guarding my heart from bad attitudes and unholy influences. And we shouldn't forget, we should remember actually, verse 22 and 23, remember our ministry to one another. Have mercy on those who doubt. Maybe that's you today. You're doubting. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing, Lord? Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's involved. That's a pastoral work. That's entering into the fray of human suffering. Shepherding, it's dirty. It's hard. But it's glorious. And it's what he's called us to do. 
Do others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh? So how much, uh, how much do we need to remember of God's goodness to us and his call to us and to remember that the grip he has on our life and soul, he's able to keep us from stumbling, verses 24 and 25. So there's a truth to contend for. There's truth worth dying for. And it's so easy to say that in a room where everybody's on the same page. You come to this conference by choice. You're serving your churches and we say, yes, we want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would remember that what that call is. I think of Matthew 10, Jesus said, if anyone confesses me before men, I'll confess him before the Father. If anyone denies me, I'll deny him. That's sobering. Thinking of the blood of the martyrs. I was reminded just in closing on truth worth dying for of a scene. It's in 2 Maccabees chapter 7. If you're ever interested in looking at that. During the Maccabean period when Antiochus IV wanted to wipe out all the Jews and he figured the best way to do that is to eliminate their religion. So Antiochus said that Everything the law says to do, we're going to require the opposite. And he ordered that every Jew offer up a pig on the altar of sacrifice, the despised animal, and thereby deny God. Soldiers came into one village, and there was a Jewish mother with her seven sons lined up. And the oldest boy was told by the soldier to offer a pig on the altar he didn't, and deny Jehovah. And the young man refused, and he stood firm in his belief that Jehovah was the true God. And in the presence of his family, they scalped him and cut off his hands and both his feet, and they cut out his tongue, and then they threw him into the flames and executed him. Then came the second son. Now you offer the pig on the sacrifice. And he refused, and he was executed the same way. And so it was with the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth son. All stood firm in their belief for Jehovah. The soldiers then came to the seventh son, just a boy. And they didn't want to execute him. They took the mother aside, the brokenhearted mother, and said, if you would just persuade your son to touch the pork to his lips, we'll let him go. And the mother, in her native tongue, took her son aside and she said, I carried you nine months in my womb. I nursed you for three years. I reared you for a time just like this. I urge you to look around you and see the heavens and the earth. They were not made by human hands. I urge you not to be afraid of these butchers and to be worthy of your brothers. And I urge you to remain faithful to God, even in death, that I might join you with your brothers. And that boy came out and stood before the soldiers and held out his arms and said, cut him off. The same God who gave me these hands in the first place will give them to me again. And the historian wrote, so he died in his integrity, putting his trust in the Lord. And lastly, the mother was killed also. The historian wrote, filled with a noble spirit, she fired her woman's reason with a man's courage. It was that incident that became the incentive for the Maccabean revolt. Judas marched on Jerusalem. They cleared the city of the Greeks and the Jews were free for the first time in 400 years. And so we're a part 
of the fellowship of the unashamed. (laughs) And I pray that we would contend earnestly for what really matters. For one day we'll stand before him. That's where the race ends, brothers. And so as we walk among God's people and we want to be faithful pastors, Lord, what do I need to be contending for? And a lot of that can be covered by just faithfully preaching the word in season and out of season. To where that's introduced to the congregation. And they know, you know, carnal people get really bored with exposition. They get bored with it. And often young pastors will enter into a church and we're wired up and we want, we want to correct everything and we'll look at these things that are cockeyed and we're walking around with a proverbial hammer wanting to hit the nail and hit this and dealing with externals. But one of the strongest things you and I can ever do is Sunday after Sunday opening the scripture, reading the word of God and preaching it to his people. Enough with strategies. I I know we need to strategize, but that is the greatest strategy we could ever have. That's what that that sets the agenda for the church. So if pastors are caught up in these clam bakes and taffy pulls during the week that really have little to do with kingdom work, as we would think, to come back to, I'm going to preach the word Sunday. I'm going to stand confidently on the scriptures Sunday. Because that's what I need, and that's what they need. And, um, and then the carnal mind thinks, hey, he's, he's, not, he's not sending out you know, cheap shots during the message. He's actually dealing with the text and really looking at what God wants us to hear. And maybe they'll hear it. And maybe it will re- reveal their heart to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray together. More to come, guys. Lord, I look forward to a deep dive into these verses through Phil, through Matthew and Chris, as we look to the book of Jude. I pray for these brothers. Um, I pray that the message of Jude would encourage them and that we would leave this conference with just greater insight into how to press on to your high calling. Um, We ask, Lord, your hand upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.